Sometime in the mid-2000s, I think like in 2002, Pastor John Piper preached a, a series of sermons on prayer. Uh, his church, which was Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, they would devote every January, at least two Sundays in every January, to the subject matter of prayer. And we may do that for, for the ongoing future. We may devote a couple of weeks in January every, every year to the subject of prayer. But in one particular sermon, actually two particular sermons John Piper preached, I'm going to borrow some from those sermons, borrow heavily. So you, you know what that means. My, my grandfather used to say we preach, the best, uh, we preach the best sermons on the internet, and that's, there's some truth to that. But I'm going to borrow a few of these points on prayer from that sermon. Um, a couple of things we could say about prayer and how to pray, like we're going to really get into the how-to part of the, uh, the sermon series. And as I've said, I want this to be the least, least condemning sermon you've ever heard, certainly the least condemning sermon hopefully you've ever heard on prayer. But as we think about prayer, there are some different ways that we can pray. And so let's think about them in maybe two different categories. The first category is this, we have public and assembled prayers, like the one I just prayed. We're it was a public prayer being offered and we were assembled together. And so there's this idea of us publicly and as we've assembled, we pray. And that's a good thing to do. Our weekly gatherings should be marked by prayer. Our elder meetings, as we meet together, they're, they're marked by prayer. We open them up in an extended time of prayer. We end them with prayer and we find ourselves throughout the elder meeting praying about certain situations and asking God for wisdom and praying for you as your names come up in those meetings. Our community groups, as they meet, they should be marked as assemblies of prayer. There should be devoted time of prayer together where you're assembled and you're together and you're praying publicly. Our student ministries, may they be places of prayer. Our kids point volunteers as they come, they arrive early and someone leads in a time of prayer. I think it would be a, a level of hypocrisy though if, um, if the only time we ever prayed was when we prayed in public. Like if the only time you ever heard me or the only time I ever prayed was whenever I prayed from this pulpit or when we were um, together or whether you were assembled, if that's the only time you pray, there's a level of hypocrisy in that because the question would be is like, who are you really praying to? Am I just in here praying to you all? Are you praying to your community group? Are you really praying to God as you gather together? And so there's another kind of prayer that the Bible discusses, not just a public and assembled prayer, but private prayer when we're alone, private and alone. And let me break those, that in that category, I'm going to break it into two subcategories. So under private and alone, I'm going to talk about two other ways that we can pray. The first one is spontaneous and ongoing prayer. So as Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says this very short part. He says, pray without ceasing. It's that kind of prayer that I'm talking about that's spontaneous and ongoing. Hopefully it's deeper than the Carrie Underwood prayer of, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. Hopefully it's more than just that. Whenever you feel like the car's going out of the control or your child's out of control or you're out of control where you're crying out, Lord, take the wheel. But it's this idea of ongoing prayer. Last week we said that prayer is communication. And as this communication, this is ongoing communication with the Father throughout the day. So you're just continuing in that. Um, my grandfather, who was also a minister, um, after he retired from full-time ministry. He was semi-retired, and we got to serve on a church for a short period of time together. My grandfather was the associate pastor. I was the, the youth pastor, and on Sunday evenings, prior to the Sunday evening gathering, 
or the Sunday evening service, uh, the, the pastors and the deacons of the church would get together in the senior pastor's office and we would have a time of prayer together. The way that we prayed is we just kind of worked our way around the room. So the senior minister would start us in prayer and then somebody else would pray. And for whatever reason, my grandfather loved to finish in prayer. He loved to close out in prayer. So every, every week he would, you would know that, you know, Brother Ken, my grandpa, he's gonna close out in prayer. Well, one particular Sunday evening, my grandfather closed out in prayer. And as he finished and he said, in the strong and mighty name of Jesus, we pray, amen. And one of the deacons chimed in and he said, and Lord, we also pray for, and then he made a petition known and he finished up. And then he said, amen. And as we were leaving the the, uh, office that day, my grandfather grabbed me by the arm and he said, what's wrong with that guy? Didn't he realize I done 10 for the Lord? You don't chime back in after I done 10 for the Lord. Well, this ongoing spontaneous prayer that I'm talking about is where you never tend for the Lord. I had a good friend of mine uh, by the name of Shane Hartsfield, and we would pray together, and Shane would say, hey, brother, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dial up. I want you to hang up. That's what he'd say, and you just never hang up. You just continue throughout the day. You're constantly praying to the Lord. John Piper said this in, a, I think, Let the Nations Be Glad book. He says, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. So when we talk about prayer and this idea of prayer is communication, there should be a picture that enters into your mind. And I think that's a wonderful picture, a picture of a wartime walkie-talkie where you're calling in support, you're calling in artillery, you're calling in some help from HQ, you know? The one who's got all the power that he can send it in. It's not for you to ring up the butler to come in and to fluff your pillows and to bring you more bonbons. And what's assumed in that imagery is that our lives are warfare. And they are. Read Ephesians chapter six. We wrestle not against we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers uh, and places of spiritual darkness. That's what we're doing here. The Christian life is war. It's war to tame your tongue, is it not? It's war when you fight against and go against the grains of the flesh. That is war. It's war to raise kids in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord without killing them and sending them to Jesus, right? It's war to do that. It's absolute warfare. And we have this device in which we can call in help, in which we can find support. And that thing is called prayer. And it's a good thing. It highlights our dependence upon the Lord, that we're not just trying to do this thing in the flesh, but that we need help. We're constantly in our lives, we're sowing seeds. And every time we sow seeds of the flesh, it will never bear fruits of righteousness. We need righteous means and righteous ways and seeds being sown in the spirit in order to reap a harvest of righteousness. There's another type of private and alone prayer. And this is the structured and scheduled prayer. So you got this ongoing prayer. You're praying without ceasing. It's just the, the need arises and you pray. But there's another type of prayer and it's structured prayer and scheduled prayer. I think it's the kind of prayer that's really Jesus is getting at in the complimentary text to Luke chapter 11, which is Matthew chapter six. What Jesus is doing in Matthew six is he's 
contrasting the hypocrites who just pray when they're assembled, who just pray in public, the religious who just care about appearances and what's on the outside. What Jesus is teaching is you you battle against, you fight against the religious hypocrite that is in you on your knees in prayer with the door shut, just you and the Lord. That's what he's saying. Matthew chapter six, verse six. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The inner man is confronted in scheduled and structured times of prayer. That prayer, here's the principle, prayer needs to be scheduled. Prayer like this that I'm talking about, it needs to be prioritized. If your prayer is just left, if your prayer time is just left to chance, I will bet you and I will guarantee you that Satan will do everything in his power to make sure that it never happens. And that's probably true for many of us. Our schedules get so busy and our lives just get so plagued down and we think, Like, okay, I need to spend some more time. I need to pray better. I need to get before the Lord and pray. And yet we find ourselves like our schedules just strangle it out and it never happens. And we lay down at night and we try to fire off some prayer and we fall asleep during that time. Listen, here's true. This is another principle, the life of prayer. The life of prayer and the struggle to pray, those are both normal to the Christian life. That if you only pray spontaneous prayers, these kind of popcorn prayers throughout the day, then I can say this, then probably your life lacks true intimacy and true communion with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. If you're just all through the day, Jesus, take the wheel, Jesus, help me, just these little popcorn prayers that are important, then they're good. But if you never have a scheduled and structured time of prayer, I would be willing to bet your life lacks any kind of genuine communion, any kind of genuine intimacy with the Lord. If you're sitting here today and you go like, what are you even talking about by that? Well, we wanna provide a help to you. One of our sisters, uh, Sarah Goodrich, has written a testimony in an article about that very thing, about how to, how, to, how to cultivate intimacy with the Lord in prayer that prepares you for tragedy in your life. We push that out via social media. You can find it as well on our, on, on our uh, website. So go there and read that. Listen, spontaneous and ongoing prayer, it's marked by freedom and by need. The need arises and you pray. And again, those are good things. I'm not saying don't ever do that. That's important for you to do. Again, it highlights your dependency upon the Lord. Self-sufficiency is a sin. It's rooted in pride. And the Lord's calling that out of us. And we need to be dependent upon him. And prayers like that are important, but there's also this need for a scheduled time of prayer that should be marked by some form and structure. And I think that's what's most difficult for many of us to really cultivate that. So I want to give you some help in that. How do you do that? How do you get the most out of that kind of prayer? Because I get it. It's difficult. You do as as Jesus instructed. You go in the room, you shut the room, you sit down in a chair, and then you go like, what do I do now? Now, some of you, again, the Christian life prayer is easy for you. You go in the room and you just pour your heart out to the Lord and you talk and you sing and you pray and you experience him and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's great to be you. I know some of you and that's awesome. 
Some of you may be like me. You go in the room and you say a few prayers and it feels like it hit the ceiling. It just fell back. And you're just like, where's this intimacy you talked about and all this? So for those of you who have tried prayer, tried it scheduled, tried it structured, tried a prayer room, tried a prayer closet, tried a war room, right? You saw the movie. You're like, I want to be like that lady. I'm getting me a war room. And you tried that, but then you failed at it. Let me give you a a couple of tips to help you. Four of them. Number one, use the Bible. That's the first one. When you go into your prayer closet, I think you should take a couple of things with you. Number one, your Bible. Number two, a journal. And we'll get there. But first, let's talk about your Bible. Prayer is communicating with God, not just communicating to God. Prayer is communication. You're praying to God, but then there's this part where you understand it by faith. You believe that God is listening. The Father's listening. Jesus is interceding. The Spirit's enabling you, helping you to pray, even when you don't know what to say, even though you're like, oh, that sounds stupid. Why would I say that? You know, and you're, you know, rethinking all of those things, right? We believe still the Father is listening, but then there's another part. There's another aspect where God talks to us, but that isn't called prayer. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible talk about God talking to you. When God talks to you, that's called reading your Bible. That's what reading your Bible is. It's hearing from God. Maybe even to take that one step further, it's God illuminating scripture to you. See, this is the importance of having a a yearly reading plan, a daily reading plan where day by day you're reading and you're digging into God's word. You're reading it. You're doing it as a psalmist. It says you're hiding God's word in your heart so that you may not sin against him. But what God does in the prayer closet, in the prayer room, is as you're praying, you're praying about these things, like God will bring into your mind passages and parts of scripture. And you may have to take a break and go, now where is that in the Bible? And you may look it up and then you'll find yourself praying those very things talking about that very scripture. Some of you in here, you may say, hey, Andy, I don't know how to pray. I've heard that. I felt like that. I get that. I didn't know how to pray. Well, listen, Jesus has helped you. God has helped you. He's given you a whole book that's filled with prayers, 150 prayers. You've got it right here. It's called the book of Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, it's prayers and it's songs. But if you just read them and don't sing them, then it's, it's prayers and it's real prayers from a real people. Real people who are struggling with real emotions like you and I struggle with. They're feeling anxious. The psalmist is feeling anxious. The psalmist is feeling, you know, uh, questioning whether God is really there or not. He's feeling abandoned. He's feeling joyous, uh, joyous in those. And I'm a huge advocate for taking the Bible and opening up a psalm and beginning there, starting there. In fact, on our weekly prayer guide, it usually has a call to worship. That call to worship is a psalm. If you want to know more about this, here's a fantastic book by Donald Whitney called um, Praying the Bible. I'm always going to call it Praying Psalms, but it's called Praying the Bible. It's like 98 pages, right? You can read that. And it's a fantastic book helping you to learn how to use the Bible as a guide to help structure your time of prayer. Not only should you use your Bible, but here's another one, use lists. As I said, we do a weekly prayer guide. You can get that and you can take that, print that off, carry that, have it on your phone and use that as a time of prayer. Make a list of the people and the things that you should pray about. John Piper talks about having concentric circles. You start off with yourself and you pray for your needs and then you move outward where you're praying for your immediate family. You move outward a little further where maybe you're praying for your church family. You keep moving out where now you're praying for your elders. You keep moving out where you're praying for the nation and the world. You keep moving out in these concentric circles, but sometimes those are helpful. 
Recently, I've been using my notes app on my phone because I've always got my phone with me, right? And we fooled the teachers. For those of us that are my age, you know, when the teacher said, you need to learn how to do math on pen and paper because you won't always have a calculator with you. Got you, right? Two things we've always got with us, our phones, right? So we therefore, we always have a calculator with us. And then also, we've always got a notebook in our phones where we can take notes and find them. And so when somebody comes to me and says, hey, Pastor Andy, will you pray for me on this such and such thing? I think it would be incredibly hypocritical for me to say, yeah, I'll pray for you, but I never pray for that person. Saying you're gonna pray for somebody and actually praying for them, that's two different things. I think we're hypocritical when we tell people, hey, I'm praying for you, and we never really pray for them. And so one of the ways is, as a discipline that's helped me is to simply to, to take notes and to write those down. So use lists. Next, use books. There have been whole books that have been written about prayer and for prayer. One that I love and recommend to you is a book called Valley of Vision. Valley of Vision, it's written by Puritans, old dead guys. Imagine that. I'm, you know, recommending old dead guys for you to read. But these Puritans that have written, and it's just a beautiful book of prayers called Valley of Vision. You can find it, Google it, find it, grab it, buy it. You'll love it. The next one is Operation World, which leads us to pray for the nations and that the gospel would go forth. Use books of prayers. And lastly, that takes us finally to the text. Halfway into my sermon, we get into the text finally. Use Jesus's model for prayer, as you'll find it in Matthew chapter six and in Luke 11. See, what's happening in this, we often call it, you know, the Lord's prayer or Jesus's prayer, but really what it is, is Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, to pray. It's a model of prayer. He isn't telling us what to pray as much as he's teaching them how to pray. This isn't a prayer that should just be memorized and then recited, mindlessly recited back to Jesus. That's not what he's saying here. There's no magic in this, right? This isn't an incantation. What Jesus is doing is he's teaching us how to pray. And I think what he's really showing us is he's showing us the parts and the kinds of prayer that are profitable to us. Using this prayer as a springboard to pray for other things. Oftentimes we say prayer changes things. How many of you have ever said that? Believe that? We believe that prayer changes things. It absolutely changes things. Prayer has the potential to change your circumstances. Absolutely, yes. The writer of James says, you have not because you ask not, right? You can go to God and you can ask. And if it's in accordance to his divine providential will, God may do that thing. And he may not have done it if you hadn't have asked, but you, that's next week, but you ask and he does that. Prayer has the potential to change your circumstances. But let me tell you about prayer's higher potential of change. And that is the change that will take place in your heart and in your attitude and in your mind about your circumstances in prayer. Can't tell you the numbers of times that I've been anxious and frustrated and mad and whatever else, negative emotions that I've carried with me into the prayer closet. And in that time of prayer, it changed everything. And yet nothing of the circumstances changed. But what changed was my faith my outlook. It helped readjust and reshift my eyes to him. It healed my heart. See, prayer is, we talked about this as we define prayer. We got these little prayer is statements. This is one for us. Prayer is bearing your heart before the Lord. Prayer isn't just you telling God what you need. God, I need this. I need this. I need this. 
But prayer, genuine prayer, real prayer is you in the prayer closet, you with Jesus, are you on your knees, you in your chair, wherever it may be, you bearing your heart before the Lord. The word bear, it's a verb and it means this, to uncover a part of the body or other thing and expose it to view. And that's what you're doing. You're exposing your heart, your heart, your attitude, your mind, the thing that you're thinking about, you're exposing that to the Lord in prayer. Now he already sees it. You go, he already sees it. I know he already sees it. There's great power whenever we reveal that to him, we bear that to him. And we wanna walk through that very picture. As we think about our hearts in prayer, I wanna apply that to Jesus's model prayer as we found it in Luke chapter 11. And we'll just be looking at three, these three verses, starting in verse number two. And Jesus said to his disciples, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. See, this is the part of prayer that we could call adoration. And in adoration, what we're doing is we're realigning our hearts. See, we drive cars and our roads have potholes. Some of you, you don't understand, you know, you don't have a good uh, uh, perspective about space around you. And some of you curb your vehicles. Husbands, no point at your wives at this time. You'll get in a lot of trouble for doing that. But you curb your vehicles. You run over potholes. You run over things. And our cars get out of alignment. And you got to take them to a shop. They put them on sophisticated machinery where they do a front-end alignment. They calibrate the front end of your car. You and I, we, some of us, we're at that age where we injure ourselves in our sleep. <laughs> While we're sleeping, we wake up the next morning, we're like, oh Lord, I don't know what I've done, but I've done it and our backs get misaligned. We bend over and we pick something up and our backs get out of alignment. And so we have to go see a chiropractor like Dr. Hendricks, right? Maybe your chiropractor of choice. You go in and you lay down on a table and you get adjusted. We should have done a sermon illustration. I could have got a free adjustment, you know? You get adjusted realign, recalibrated. You, you walk out of there going like, man, I feel three inches taller. Woo, feels so good, right? The same thing occurs in our lives. Our hearts get misaligned. We get on Facebook. We read the news. We watch Fox or CNN or whatever else. We see the things, real things that are happening all around us. We watch sports. Our hearts get all misaligned by those things and we have to have a means in which we can align them. And in prayer, specifically through adoration, we are realigning our hearts to care about the things that are most important to us. Notice number one, what Jesus teaches, and we talked about this a ton last week, but for those of you that weren't there, it bears repeating. Notice first who you were praying to, Father. This is uncommon for him to say this here. I mean, the Jewish people would have never like referred to, G- to God as father. They would have never done that. Jesus is teaching that he is their father through his work that he's about to do. And the reality is the foundation of prayer, the foundation of our communion with God is our union with God. That's a loaded statement, but you got to understand that the foundation of your communion with God is your union with God. It's the attitude we talked about last week, the attitude that we go into with prayer, that God, you are my father because of my belief in your son, Jesus, and his atoning work in my life. And you delight, you've adopted me into your family and you delight to care for me. 
not a burden or an imposition to you. You delight to hear me. You delight to meet with me. You delight to commune with me. That's your attitude as you come to him and say, Father. And then the next line that he says to say is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to sanctify and to revere and to make and to keep holy. Hallowed be your name, Father. Over everything, over all of creation, See, all throughout the Old Testament, we talk about this often, throughout the Old Testament, the the, uh, name of God was something that was to be revered. The, The name, even his name was so holy that they would never even speak it and put it upon their lips. That when scribes would take with the words from the, from the prophets and they're going to, you know, they didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have mimeographs, right? They didn't have pictures to email out, but they had scribes who were going to write down the words from Isaiah or the words from Jeremiah. They're going to now kind of publish those, if you will. And those scribes, as they came to the name of God, they would lay down their pen or their plume or their stick or whatever it was they used. And then they would bow down and they would ask God to forgive them of all their sins because in their mind, I'm getting ready to write down the most revered, holy, beautiful name that I could possibly think about. And then they would write it, they would lay it back down, kneel down, and they would pray again. Then they'd get back up and they would go to work. Remember Moses all the way back in the book of Exodus. In the beginning of Exodus, as Moses approaches the, the burning bush and God is inside the, or his voice is inside the burning bush and God speaks coming out there. And what he tells Moses is, Moses, don't come any f- further. Take off your sandals because you're about to stand on holy ground and I'm about to make my name known to you. There is this moment in prayer where we take off our shoes, right? Maybe not physically, I'm talking about in your heart. You take off your shoes because you realize I'm meeting with God. I'm coming face to face with God, and we take off that as we, our shoes, as we stand in awe of God. See, adoration, it realigns our priorities. When we spend time thinking about the glory and the beauty and the majesty of this God who invites us to call him Father, when we think about that, it realigns our priorities. You're no longer, you now are, you, what you are most concerned with is the glory and the renown and the fame of God. What's most important to you isn't that you get your needs met. It's not what you, you telling God what you need, but bigger than that is God's glory, God's honor, God's name being made known and God's name being revered. Adoration, it realigns your affections. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, three, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And in adoration, you're, you're magnifying the name of the Lord in your own heart. You're reminding yourself of the beauty of God and the majesty of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that prayer is beyond any question, the highest activity of the human soul. That man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees, he comes face to face with God. I don't know if any of you have ever been to any of the beautiful natural wonders that this world has to offer, the United States has to offer, especially think about places like the Grand Canyon or Sequoia National Forest or Yosemite. I remember my wife took me on a trip one time we went to Yosemite and I saw the Yosemite Falls and I remember how majestic and how beautiful. 
Listen, it was majestic and beautiful because I beheld it. There wasn't a tour guide standing there telling me, hey, buddy, this is really beautiful. You need to look at it. I saw it and I was in awe of it. Adoration filled my heart. And the same thing is happening in prayer as we adore God, as we think about him. Hearts are filled with adoration. It speaks to our affections. And in adoration, you realize that Jesus is altogether lovely. And in adoration, you're pulling your affections off of the thousands, the hundreds of other things that vie for those affections. It reminds me of John, 1 John chapter 2, where John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Our affections get all misaligned by just living in the world, do they not? Do they not? Yeah, they do. But it's in adoration and prayer that our, ador- that our affections get realigned. In adoration, it realigns our allegiance. Notice what follows that, your kingdom come. Here's the reality, dear believer. The priority of our allegiance belongs to Jesus and to his kingdom, not to this world, not to this country, not to a political party, and heaven forbid, not to a president. And we say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Those are powerful words, and those are true words, and those are fine words to say, but that allegiance for the Christian is always a lesser allegiance than our allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom. It realigns our allegiance where we remind ourselves. We remind ourselves of our greatest priority, which is the kingdom of God to come, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that does not belong to this earth, that is not part of this world. See, we live in this world and it's so easy to get swept up into the stream of politics and media and entertainment and sports. In sports, right? I mean, gosh, how, how brutal this week has been. You all have seen the news. You all watch the news. You've watched it happen. I mean, we almost got beat on Tuesday night, and then on Saturday, the Wildcats just walked away with it, right? We find ourselves swept up in that. On Tuesday night, I'm getting ready to burn all my UK gear in the, in the front yard. If they lose, I'll never watch another game. And then they win. And then on Saturday, they beat Florida, a much better team. And it looks so good. And I'm like, whoa. And adoration, it realigns our priorities and our allegiance, right? So you thought I was going to talk about something else, didn't you? It goes without saying, does it not? We need this as a daily reminder that our lives do not rise and they do not fall on the events that happen in this world. They certainly don't rise and fall in a bunch of teenagers in basketball shorts, and they sure, certainly don't rise and fall in politics. But our allegiance rises and falls on an eternal king who's reigning and ruling and upholding the very cosmos by the word of his power. And we, as his church, we belong to that kingdom. And our prayer is that his kingdom come, his will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And our job is to press that kingdom into the darkness, into every dark, demonic 
corner of this world. And we do that not by putting on assault weapons. We do that by proclaiming and preaching and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and praying and being people of prayer and pressing the darkness back by the power of our prayers. And so may we be a people of prayer. Verse number three, give us each day our daily bread, Jesus teaches us. Now we're getting into the meat of the matter. Now we're getting into the supplication. Now we're getting into the part where we're letting our desires, the desires of our heart be known to God. And this is prayer as petition. We're bringing our petitions before the Lord. We're expressing our dependence upon him, our daily dependence. What is it you need today? Do you need bread? Do you need food? Do you need money for rent? Do you need money for mortgage? What else do you need today? Do you need wisdom? Do you need patience? Do you need godliness? You're going, yes, 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 and yes. I need all of that. You're making those things known. Maybe it's physical things. Maybe it's spiritual things. We remind ourselves that God is a rewarder. Scripture declares that. God is a rewarder to those who diligently seek him. James writes again in James chapter one, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And as we said last week, prayer is the God-appointed means by which his children get supernatural help. The next part is the part, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This is the confession part. This is us unburdening our hearts. See, there's two things that are being declared in that. When we confess, notice that where there's two declarations being made. The first declaration is that we sin and forgive us, right? Our sin. So there's a declaration that you're a sinner and that you sin. But notice there's a second declaration that's being made, a second prayer that's being offered, that we are sinned against. For we ourselves, we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, it's not indebted there doesn't mean they owe us money. So we say, hey, hey, don't, don't worry about that. But what he's talking about there, and we see that really in uh, Matthew chapter 6, is when we're sinned against. We sin before the Father, but also we're sinned against. And here's the deal. When you and I, when we sin, we rightly feel guilt for our sin. You and I, we rightly feel conviction for our sin. And if, uh, and if that is not dealt with, if those kinds of things, if that guilt and that conviction is not dealt with, then what it can easily turn into is it can turn into shame and our conviction can turn into condemnation, which is demonic. It's not what God wants you to feel. And so you have to have something that you can do, a place to go with that guilt that you rightfully feel about your sin. And where do you take that? Well, you confess that to the Father. And as you confess it, you're unburdening your heart in it. You pray and you ask, God, forgive me of my sins. And you tell him what your sins are. God, I've sinned against you in these ways. And then you follow up with that, not just by like beating yourself up, but you follow up with that by rehearsing the gospel to yourself. You remind you that, you're for, that, you're, that forgiveness is not found because you're good enough, because you're smart enough, because you ask, but forgiveness is found in Jesus. And you rehearse the gospel. So Jesus, you died on a cross for my sin, for that very sin that I'm confessing before you. You died on the cross. You paid that penalty on the cross. On the cross, I find forgiveness for my past sins and my future sins and my, I mean, my present sins and even my future sins. And so you confess that 
But also when you and I, when we're sinned against, I mean, have you ever been sinned against? Has anybody ever said something mean to you or hurt you or done something that's wrong with, for you or wrong to you? When you're sinned against, you feel hurt and disappointment and anger and frustration and a desire to get even. And in confession, you're, in confession, you're confessing those things as well. You're saying to God, God, I feel so wrong. God, I feel so hurt. I feel so angry. And then guess what you do after you confess your feelings in your heart? Then you rehearse the gospel over that too. You say to Jesus, Jesus, I I know you know how this feels. I know that because of my sin, you've been wronged. You know how it feels to be sinned against because I've sinned against you. And yet Jesus has said of you that when you were reviled, you did not revile in return. That when you suffered, you did not threaten but you entrusted yourself to the father who judges justly. And Jesus, may I do the same? Vengeance belongs to you. It's not belongs to me. It's not my job. It's too heavy of a burden for me to carry out. And you confess whatever it is in your heart in confession. Is it anxiety? And Lord, you you declare that, Lord, I'm so anxious. I'm carrying this burden. I'm carrying these things and it's crushing me in this time. Mind yourself of what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 7. You cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, confession is, as I said, it's unburdening your heart. It's casting your cares, casting your anxieties, casting those things upon the Lord, and then also praying in a way that brings resolution to it. In fact, my prayer journal, it looks like this. My prayer journal for me is a, a series of questions that I ask. The first one, What I do is I have a call to worship, and that's the adoration piece. Write that down in my journal. I put that at the top. It's a call to worship. It's adoration. It's usually a psalm. Second, what follows is confession, a time of confession, a time where I ask, what's in your heart, Andy? What what do you feel in your heart? What is it? What, What negative, especially what negative emotion are you feeling that is incongruent to the fruit of the spirit. I ask myself that question and I write in the blank. This is what I feel in this moment. This is what I'm feeling this morning. This is what I'm feeling today. The next part is I bring the gospel to bear on that thing. Possibly in confession, it's a time for me to confess my sins before the father. But then I bring the gospel to bear. I ask myself, is it right to feel this way? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ speak to that? Next is a time of petition. So what do you need from today? What do you need for today? Confession helps me to see my dependence. I'm feeling anxious. What I need today, Jesus, I need your peace. I need faith. I need to trust you. I need to believe you. Pray that often, oh, for grace to trust you more. Oh, for grace to trust you more. Need more of the Holy Spirit. And then there's usually for me a time of intercession where I ask myself, who can I pray for? It's like I've unburdened my own heart and then I go burden my heart with your burdens. Think about you and the things that you may be struggling with. And I begin to pray for those things. I intercede, talk about that more next week. And then I end with Thanksgiving, a time of giving thanks to the Lord for all that he is and all that he's done. As we close out our time together, just simply, are you devoted to prayer? Are you a person who's who's devoted? 
Intentions will only take you so far. Duty and discipline, those are great things, and you need that in here. But what we're talking about is we're talking about something else. We're talking about delight. We're talking about something that's even more powerful. We're talking about a devotion to the Lord in prayer. So we end, I want you to do three things. Just reflect, respond, and then if need be, repent. Reflect on your own heart. Reflect on your own priorities. Reflect on how your heart feels. Respond to Jesus. Here in a second, we're going to pass out the Lord's Supper. Myself and Pastor Frank, we're going to come through and we're going to pass out Jesus's body that's been broken for you, Jesus's blood been shed for you. And that's the most clarifying truth in your life. More clarifying, more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper is what Jesus has done for you as you respond to him and think about that. And lastly, if there's time, and if, I mean, if there's space in your own heart, the Lord shows you to repent, to turn from sin and to turn towards him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. And would you superintend this moment? As we come together, Jesus, superintend this moment. Be near to us and be with us. In your name we pray, amen.